This is a Radio 191 FM podcast. Kia ora, and welcome to Breathe Science, Season 3, Episode 1. My name is Flynn Robson, and my co host is Ben Parnica. If you've been a long time listener of the show, you'll know that this is not how we usually start the podcast. This is because between seasons, I graduated and moved away from the wonderful Otipoti Dunedin to the magical Otatahi Christchurch to study a master's degree. This left Ben and I in a tough position as to the future of Breather Science, but luckily for us, the awesome crew at Radio 1 91FM Dunedin decided to pick us up for another season, allowing us to remotely record from our two locations. If you're new to the podcast, then welcome. I hope you enjoy the show. For the first episode, we're taking a break from our usual format to give you a special show on the icy Antarctic. We hope you enjoy. The year is 1957. Below the slopes of Mount Erebus, at the southern end of Ross Island, Captain Harold Rug is giving a short speech to a small crowd of Kiwis and Americans. Rug is the administrator for the Ross Dependency, the part of Antarctica claimed by New Zealand. The Americans are from the nearby McMurdo Station, and the New Zealanders are the Ross Sea Support Party of the Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Among the crowd is one of New Zealand's greatest ever explorers, Sir Edmund Hillary. Hillary and his team are planning to lay out depots for a second team coming from the Weddell Sea, who aimed to cross the icy continent. Appropriately, a flag used by the outpost namesake, Robert Falcon Scott, in his travels half a century prior, is being raised. This event marks the opening of Scott Base, New Zealand's only Antarctic research station, on the 20th of January, 1957. 64 years on, and thousands of kilometres away from the frosty outpost, Ben caught up with Professor Mars Lamar of the University of Otago to talk to him about his role at the university, life on Scott Base, and Antarctic research in New Zealand. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day, Mars. Not a problem. Glad to be here. Um, so you're the professor, uh, professor and head of marine science at Otago Uni, um, and your area of expertise is in Antarctica, Antarctic yeah. ecology. Yeah, so Antarctic research and uh, research on marine invertebrates in general, yeah, and climate climate effects on those marine animals. Um, a question that I've always wanted to ask you is, how did you get to where you are now? Like, the journey from, I don't know, um, coming out of uni to, to being head of department. Yeah. Well, when I was at university, I was always interested in the Antarctic and... Uh, I worked at a marine lab, Portobello Marine Lab on the peninsula, and there was Antarctic scientists passing through there all the time from, from the United States Research Program, and I sort of talked to them, and I kind of hinted that I was keen to go down. I was, I was still doing my own studies. Um, anyway, about a week later, the guy rang me up and said, are you interested in going to the Antarctic? And I said, yeah. He says, well, you need to be ready in a week. And so... That sounds easy, but when you've got to get wisdom, in those days you had to get wisdom teeth pulled out and that. So I was off to the dent school getting teeth pulled out and doing medicals and all sorts. And then a week later I was in Christchurch ready to fly down and we were working on Antarctic fish. So the um, the guy I worked for, a guy called Professor Art DeVries, he discovered the antifreeze proteins in fish 
And so we were down there helping him do all the science, so catching fish and bleeding fish and um, extracting the proteins from the blood so they could do all the analysis on those. So that was, that was way back when I was, geez, I was, in 1994 that was, and I ended up spending three years down there, off and on, working on the, on polar fish. But my my interests aren't actually in fish, they're in invertebrates, so starfish and sea urchins and that. And while I was down there, there was also big um, big interest in the ozone hole. And so while I was down there, I got talking to people about doing research on ozone and how ozone depletion and increases in UV-affected marine life in the Antarctic. And when I finished my time down there, I got a postdoc over in the US investigating the effects of UV on marine life. And then from there, I came back to New Zealand and started my own research program in the New Zealand Antarctic um, research program looking at the effects of UV on, on Antarctic marine life. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's... Quite a journey. Quite a journey, yeah, yeah. So, um, but no, it's been lots of fun. Yeah, so that... So I've been in the Antarctic probably 15, 16 times, maybe a few more. And, um, yeah, we fly out of Christchurch, um, go down to McMurdo Sound, and from there we're working out on the sea ice or diving under the ice. I've done a few few fun trips to the South Pole and just for fun and went over to the dry valleys just for fun. But, no, it's a great place, yeah. But lots lots of research to be had. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you ever, um, like, winter over there? In fact, I've only ever seen the sunset once, like the sunsets at the end of October, and that was the earliest I've been, and the sun kind of goes around the sky in a big circle at time of the year, but it does dip behind the Transantarctic Mountains for about about a minute and comes back up again, but that's as close, otherwise it's, it's light the whole time, which is interesting, um, interesting because it's hard to kind of go to sleep, you know, you'll be midnight and it's bright sunshine and you've been working all day at the lab and you're... You've realised, gee, I better go back to better go to sleep, you know. Um, it's an interesting coming out of a bar. There's a few bars over there in the, in the McMurdo Station, which is near Scott Base, and you know you, you step out of a bar at one or two in the morning, and it's bright sunshine. It's kind of a bit of a weird feeling. Yeah, it must be very um, surreal. Yeah, but no, but it is. You got to watch. You got to kind of maintain your body rhythms a bit because of that light. Um, all the cat, all the rooms, they have shutters on them to block out the light. Um, so yeah, but yeah, base life's interesting. Um, you know, it's uh, we share a room with four or five other guys in there, and you know, so there's um, you don't have much personal space, but it's a lot of fun, pretty social place, and you know, there's always lots of interesting research going on, and we're pretty focused. We work seven days a week, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hours a day working. So we're we're pretty full on when we're down there for for a month or two, and then come home and yeah, naked, <laughs> naked, yeah. With lots of samples and lots of writing to do and, and that, but no. Yeah, I've, I imagine it would be a completely different world just in terms, yeah. of, in terms of like the actual environment and the social environment. and. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of motivated people down there, lots of interesting people. Um, there's all the base staff that, you know, run the base and there's, um, then there's the scientists, of course, and then you've got outdoor adventure types that run all the safety programs and all the outdoor training so yeah there's and there's pilots flying the choppers and what have and 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 pilots flying the planes so yeah it's all um interesting times yeah yeah down there so yeah some of the most interesting work we did was diving i used to run a dive program back in the day when i was a bit younger and a bit crazier but you know you you put a dive hut out you you drill a hole through the sea ice and 
you um, dive down between oh, through about two, two or three metres of sea ice down to the clearest seawater in the world. It's like you get a, like a visibility of a kilometre or two underwater Jesus. down there. Yeah, sites, you know, diving next to a glacier that's coming into the sea and grounding away and there's ice on the sea floor, it's so cold and there's some, you know, strange animals down there. So, yes, good, interesting place. What's the strangest animal you've seen when you've been diving, diving in Antarctica? Um, Just off the top of your head. Strangest, well, I'll start off with the, the, <laughs> the I mean, I'm interested in starfish, so, you know, they're, they're what I really enjoy, but probably the strangest or the most fun animal would be the emperor penguins that you'll see coming around. They're very, very um, curious and, and they're not scared at all. So you'll be out on the ice and, and you'll see a group of emperor penguins and they'll they'll come up to you and they'll literally stand within, you know, a couple of feet from you and talk to you and um, see what you're up to. They, I think they probably think we're big penguins. Um, so, you know, those are pretty interesting. Strangest animals, well, there are some really, really cool um, animals down there. Some of the fish are pretty interesting. Um the, the fish, some of them don't have any haemoglobin um, in their blood, and so they have transparent blood. In fact, their whole body's transparent, so you get these fish called ice fish, which are transparent. You can see right through them. Um, yeah, they're the size of a, of a trout, um, but they're completely transparent, so you can see the heart and the stomach, and you can see the brain. And all that. So they're just because they don't need, they don't need red blood cells because the oxygen concentrations are so high down there. Um, there's also gigantism, so animals that live in cold water tend to be much larger. So you get these big sea spiders, and you'll get some of the animals which are, are normally quite small around here, much larger, big big worms, underwater worms that would be normally about the size of a you know strand of spaghetti out of a can. They're up to two or three meters long, you know. And yeah, everything's a lot bigger, but real slow growing, slow moving. Everything seems to be um, at a standstill. You yeah. see some strange things, as I said. The water's so cold. It's the coldest water in the world. Uh, you get ice all forming on the seafloor, and when that ice gets enough um, volume, it actually lifts up, and it pulls with it sponges and, and sea urchins or anything that are stuck to the ice. So when you're diving, you can look up underneath the sea ice, and there'll be starfish stuck under the sea ice and rocks and that up there. Because I have seen at Portobello your, your, star, your Antarctic starfish that you have there. Yeah, so... Yeah, so we're interested in, in, in climate change and, and the Antarctic is a place which is warming up and it's also acidifying, um, as is the rest of the oceans. But the Antarctic's quite interesting because it's sort of it's sort of it's ahead of the rest of the world in terms of acidification of the oceans and in terms of the sorts of temperature changes that you can see. So we're interested in using Antarctic animals to understand how they're going to respond to warming and, and acidification, for example. And so what we've done is instead of running all our experiments down in the Antarctic, we've actually flown back to New Zealand um, and live Antarctic starfish so we can run long-term experiments. So we flew about a 1,000 starfish up from McMurdo um, a couple of years ago and then we grow them in environmental chambers at the marine station and we can then change the conditions in those chambers to, to mimic what it will be like in 100 years in terms of temperature and pH and then we can see how they adapt to that, those conditions. And then we can also see how their offspring are, are not adapted. So, for example, if you grow a starfish under slightly warmer temperatures, do they produce offspring which are slightly better adapted to warming? Something called transgenerational plasticity. So, yeah, those are, those are sort of experiments that we need to run over two or three years because it takes so long to 
to complete, and you can't really can't really sit down in the Antarctic that long. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be pretty cold. So how far how yeah. far through that project are you? In uh, terms we've of the we've actually, we we finished it. Um, we've still got about two hundred starfish left, and we're going to do some experiments on heat waves, which is a big issue at the moment. I mean, if you don't know if you know what heat waves are, but we know temperatures in the ocean are warming. But the other issue is there's these spikes, so you'll get periods where there's super warm temperatures. So one of the big issues is, is heat waves, and what that means is that every now and then you'll get a just like on land, you'll get a you know you'll get two or three weeks of really warm temperatures, and New Zealand's been through a few of those in the last two or three years. But that also occurs in the Antarctic, so we're interested in in, in heat wave experiments. Um, on how that's going to affect Antarctic life. Yeah, because so, the Marine Science Department, there's quite a few of them looking at heat waves, marine heat waves. Yeah, so my colleague of mine, Rob Smith, yeah, he's doing. He's an oceanographer, and he's looking at the actual physical process of the heat waves. Um, yeah, and we're interested in the biological responses. Yep. So, yeah, that, as I said, that, that's a follow-on experiment, but the experiment that we just finished went for a couple of years, and it was with colleagues from, from um, Belgium, University over there in Norway, and they came over and worked with us for a, for a couple of months, and Sweden as well. And yeah, we did a whole lot of work on how those larvae have responded, uh, how those starfish have responded to warming um, in terms of their energy budgets and, and their offspring and their physiology and survival. So we're in the process of writing that up. Is there any, um, can you spill any data or like, or um, any of your initial findings? Uh, so what we found was that. There was some a process going on called negative carryover effects, which is, which is actually the opposite of adaptation. In other words, if you grow an adult in warm temperatures, they don't really like those conditions and they stress out and they produce offspring that are less, um, less fit because they've been stressed themselves. They're putting less energy into their offspring, and you get what's called a negative carryover effect, which is the opposite of adaptation. And and actually, we're seeing that quite a lot across a whole range of different marine taxa, that. Um, there is there's quite a, this negative effect, which is not great. Actually, we, we have, we've so not only work in the Antarctic, we do very similar experiments in the tropics as well. Yeah, especially with corals, I'd imagine it would be quite a big one. Yeah, quite a yeah. Big negative carryover with all the bleaching events. Yeah, so we work within a really big research program. It's called Evo 2021, and within that group of people working on corals and people working on sponges, but. Within that big research team, we were focused on the sea urchins and the starfish, which is my area of speciality. So, yeah, the corals, you know, they, they certainly need to show some adaptation. And there is some evidence that you do get adaptation in corals. You get some, within a population, you'll get individuals which are better adapted to warming, and they're probably the ones that will carry on. Yeah, so, no, we've been, um, we've been working on, on adaptation in tropical species as well. Actually, some of the more interesting stuff we did was... Um, working on CO2 vents up in the Papua New Guinea. So ocean acidification is a big one. That's the carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere. About a third of that is moving into the ocean, and that's changing the chemistry, which makes it more difficult for animals which calcify to grow, and it also changes their metabolism. They don't like elevated carbon dioxide. And, you know, we've done a lot of lab experiments where you elevate the carbon dioxide, but they're only lab experiments. We're really interested in more natural sort of proxies of what the future ocean would look like. And one of those are, are CO2 vents. So areas in, there's a few in the ocean. There's a real famous one in Italy. There's White Island re- releases CO2. Um, there's vents off Japan. 
But there's also some great ones off Papua New Guinea that are venting CO2 into coral reefs. And so we've been doing experiments up there where we look at the effects of, of the elevated CO2 on, on, on adults in larval stages of marine taxa. The CO2 vents uh, we were looking at, it's just bubbling of CO2. So if you see some videos of it, it just looks like, you know, like a bottle of champagne's been opened. There's all these bubbles coming up. The temperature's not that much different, but the, CO, the pH of the water is and the carbonate chemistry is quite different. And and we can look at areas on those vents where the, the CO2 levels are similar to what it might be in 100 years' time or 200 years' time, and then we can go and study those particular spots. And, and you know, you, you do see big differences. So, like, the coral, if you compare the coral that grows in those vents compared to the corals that are growing very nearby but out of the vents because they're quite localised, it looks completely different. Like that instead of that kind of all those staghorn corals and you know much more complex reef structure, the the reef you get near the vents is much more is less complex. It's sort of just big robust corals, kind of big rounded corals. Um, and you certainly some groups of animals are uh, have gone in those vents or or they're less abundant, and then other groups are fine. So it's I think in anything there's some animals which are more tolerant than others and so you get winners and losers. You always hear that term being you know, used, winners and losers in climate change. Some groups actually, you know, they'll, they'll actually like future conditions, they like a bit of warming and that, and other groups are really susceptible, they'll disappear and, and they'll be replaced. Yeah, it's a bit, I've heard, I think it was last year they were talking about a phase shift to a jellyfish-filled ocean. Well, I guess I guess there would be some concern that you're getting a loss of of animals which do calcify, and that and jellyfish don't calcify. Um, I guess there is these rumours of jellyfish populations increasing in the oceans, and I guess that's quite complicated because it's also associated with probably other mechanisms, maybe fishing as well. Um, there could be the natural predators of jellyfish. Um, jellyfish and, and salps as a, as a, as a related group um, they also have life histories which mean that they can increase their populations asexually and they can really expand in numbers and so they may have quite a capacity to, to dominate areas of the ocean which have changed and an example that people use is the Antarctic where it's currently dominated by krill you know, Antarctic krill really dominate those ecosystems on the shelf, Antarctic shelf but they don't krill are quite sensitive to changes in the ocean and and there's a sort of this feeling that the krill are disappearing and they're being replaced by Antarctic salp and the salp are much better adapted to warming and they they can outcompete the krill if conditions change. So yeah, there's yeah, I mean there's generally a, certainly a lot a uh, concern about the loss of diversity and that's not great. And to bring you back around to Antarctica, I saw that they're upgrading Scott Base, is it? They are, yeah. So there's lots of interesting things going on in the Antarctic over the next sort of five, ten years. So um, one of the big, big uh, projects is the upgrade to Scott Base here. Yeah. And so the present base has been there since about 1953. So Sir Ed Hillary built the, the original base, and it was built um, in the the, geof- the year of the geophysical research. I think in 1953 there was a big sort of push to do research down there. So the US Navy sent a lot of ships down, the New Zealand Navy sent a ship down, I think it was called the Endeavour. Um, but at that stage there was an American base, but there wasn't a New Zealand base. And um, and the American commander, I think, Sir Ed Hillary was on the, the American ship and the 
and Ed must have Sir Ed and Hillary said oh um, you know we're looking to put a base here and they the guy just pointed out a place called Pram Point and said what about that will that do <laughs> so that's where the base ended up so they unloaded their ship and they set the base up in 53 and it's kind of grown you know a new building will be added on here and another bit there so it's kind of although it's quite a tidy looking base it's pretty old and it's got to be added piecemeal and they just realised it's not really fit for purpose anymore and it's you know the cost of maintaining it is just becoming pretty pretty extreme so it's time to to build a new base and they're looking at 240 250 million dollars I've seen the plans they're pretty pretty amazing to see I don't know if you've seen the plans no, I haven't I haven't seen yep. the plans it's it'll be the classic green Scott base colours but they're, they're kind of um, it's three big modules that look kind of like long sort of not sausages but you know, they're kind of a, a circular shaped long buildings and on three different levels on stilts then they're joined by walkways and you've got um, and it's going to modulate it so there'll be a big living module and then there'll be a science module and there'll be a big module that contains all the plant you know to keep the base running and it will be on the same site yep it'll be okay. slightly up the hill um, a bit more they'll retain a very small fraction of their existing base they're going to retain the, the marine lab that's down by the shore um, but the rest of it will go yeah they'll they'll um, knock the whole lot over yeah and it'll probably take two or three years to build um, it's interesting this, most of it's going to be built in New Zealand in big kind of modules and they've got this crazy looking ship that'll ship it down back up and so they're not going to sit down there with their saws and hammers in the cold and you know you can't really build like that um, so it'll be made in Christchurch shipped down and just sort of bolted together really and uh, yeah should be quite big big you know it looks really comfortable place to live yeah <laughs> it's like uh, you know, big glass windows at one end and yeah a lot nice. of um, yeah, and they, you know, it's um, when people are down there for months on end, particularly base staff, you need to make sure that they're comfortable and they've got, you know, a good living space, you know, so there's good gym, um, you know, good recreational facilities because you can't, you know, you got to, you got to make sure people are happy when they're down there and they're, they're and when we're down there as scientists, we just kind of work, you know, the whole time. We don't really go away and do any recreational stuff, but for people that work there, you know, they work a nine to five job so they've got all the evening to they'll go um, kite skiing and they'll go mountain biking and they'll go walking um, so yeah they want to then to they do yoga and all sorts of stuff in the gym yeah so now you've got to, got to cater for the for the staff as well as the scientists food usually pretty good the food yeah I was yeah, going to ask I, you about the yeah, food yeah often, often too good you got to watch how much you eat you know um, you get a huge appetite down there because it's so cold um, your metabolism must increase a lot which is good because you're burning calories, but you, you tend to have a huge appetite. Yep, and yeah, you know, it's kind of unlimited food, really. A bit of a buffet. A bit, a bit scary, yeah. It is, and the chefs are usually right onto it. Yeah, they're very good. Yep. Is there much fresh food, or is it a lot of tinned, sort of preserved? No, uh, oh, they 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 used to have a glasshouse down there. I'm not sure if they keep keep the glasshouse just to grow lettuces and the odd green stuff, but it's not as bad as you think because it's really good air links between New Zealand and, and Scott Base and they'll generally fly in fresh food every week. Um, so you'll get lettuces and, and that. Yeah, so you'd be surprised. You're not like eating, you know, baked beans and <laughs> and, and that. But of course, if the one thing about um, flying down there is often the weather's not conducive to flying and you can get up to two weeks where there hasn't been a plane in and that's when you'll start losing those freshies, as they call it. <laughs> yeah, but no, they. I don't know if they still maintain a glasshouse. I think they had an infestation of fruit flies and they had to 
shut it down. But yeah. And then and there's no plans for it to come back in the new new design, off the oh, top. Oh, I'd head. be surprised if they didn't have a, a small glass house. I think it's actually quite therapeutic as well because people often say when they're feeling a bit homesick, they go to the glass house and you know you can see some green plants growing and yeah, the, the, people kind of find it quite therapeutic in that. Yeah, so there's really good airlinks. I mean, one thing to remember, the New Zealand base is just over the hill from the McMurdo Station, the American base, and that's got 1,200 people living there, and they've got bowling alleys and three bars, they've got hairdressers, dentists, you know, you name it. It's a small town. And the advantage for New Zealand is that, you know, that the Americans are flying big jets down there sort of three times a week, and so this, it's really well supplied. It's not... It's not like some of the, these other bases around the continent where the ship goes down at the start of the season, drops everyone off, and then it's gone, and you're there for you know four or five months with all the supplies, and then it comes back and picks you up, and that's when you would have that kind of you know classic you know not so fresh food. Yeah. And that. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no Zoom or Skype or anything down there. Uh, there are some teleconference facilities, but that's really for the for the base staff. We can't get on Zoom, so. Communications just by email back home, and that. Yeah, the world could end while you're down there, and you wouldn't know. Yeah, well, we're on the. You know, you can get on the get on the web, and you kind of keep. It's a bit of a slow connection, but you know, like probably 30, 40 years ago, where the only communication was via shortwave radio, and and letters and that. Now it's it's all email. In fact, when I first went down there, I mean, email was just sort of coming in, so we were lucky. But if I'd been there kind of two years before, it would have just been through, you know, letters and that. And phone calls, so yeah, but yeah, no, it's um, it's not it's not too bad. It's yeah, it's not too isolated. I mean, it's a nice feeling that you could go home if you had to because it'd be a plane generally somewhere around in the next you know week or so. So it's not like you're stuck there for months. And have you been to any other countries field station apart from the states and and New Zealand? No, well? no I've only ever been down there. Yeah, so I've only ever been in um, in the Ross Sea region. Um, as I said, I flew, I used to get um, quite friendly with the US pilots. They would be looking for things to do, and they'd often ask if they could come fishing, catch some Antarctic cod, which are you know, a couple of metres long, um, pretty spectacular fish. So, yeah, we'd take the pilots out fishing, and um, in return they'd say, oh, look, you know, we're flying up to the South Pole um, in two days' time. Do you want to come along? Yeah, so, oh, heck yeah. So get on one of the skied Hercules and fly up to the, the South Pole base. Munson base and so I've been to a couple of bases there been to the um, the Dry Valleys bases that you have up through the Dry Valleys so Van Lake Vander and those places but not in any other programs and is there is there any um, research that you would want to conduct in the future in so, Antarctica oh, oh yeah definitely so one of the things I, I haven't done has been on an icebreaker and currently we're, we're involved in a big research program called the Antarctic Science Platform and this is a five year program looking at how the Ross Sea is going to respond to warming. So um, Otago is kind of leading the program, but it's working with NIWA and, and other universities in the country. But one of the things that we're really wanting to do is get a much better understanding on how species are distributed in the Ross Sea and biodiversity and biogeography and what's driving those distribution patterns. So, for example, if distributions of animals and plants in the Ross Sea are all about sea ice cover, we can then start making predictions on what will happen when that sea ice disappears in the future. So the only way we can do that work is on an icebreakers or, or 
or um, ship based research. And so we we did have the we did have the Tangara go down just last summer, and they did some really cool stuff along the Victoria Land coast, deploying ROVs and another thing called a DITAS, which is a which is a sled which goes across the bottom taking photographs and high res video. And that's just the start of this whole journey to get much greater information on biodiversity. But we are looking to get a dedicated icebreaker cruise next summer, and that will we'll spend probably two or three weeks down there um, sampling using ROVs, uh, remote-operated vehicles, which basically have cameras and manipulator arms to collect stuff. And we'll get a much better understanding on how things are distributed, and then we can bring all that information back and relate that to the environment, how it is today, and then how it might look in the future. And then we also we do genetic work, so we'll collect samples, um, look at the genetic structure of different taxa in the Ross Sea, and then once you know that, you can start understanding how populations are connected, from, you know, as a larvae moving from one place to another, so we can get a much better understanding on how the whole whole region, the dynamics of the region in terms of how populations are mixing. We can also use isotopes and trace elements in the tissue of animals, and you can build up an understanding of the food webs, so we can really start to understand how energy flows through the system, what physical um, drivers of that energy are presently, and then we can start understanding how that might look in the future when it warms and sea ice gets less or you know, productivity changes in the region, which it will inevitably because sea ice will certainly decrease as, as, as at the rate we're going. Have you noticed any change to due to climate change in your time that you've spent uh, there over the years? No, not really. I think you know. I think one of the things that we need to be mindful of is that there's that marine populations and populations in general go up and down anyway. There's natural variability, so what we need is some long-term records. And one of the aims of the current platform is to set up some long-term what we're calling sentinel sites. So we're going to choose three or four sites in the Ross Sea, which we think are representative, and we're going to set up permanent transects or permanent lines and permanent uh, moorings down there so that we can describe really well what the population and the ecosystem looks like now and then probably 30 years time someone will come along and resurvey those and they will definitely be able to say answer your question has it changed I mean I could we can't answer at the moment we don't have the information but we will Um, you know there's so much value in long-term data sets and you know there's very few regions in the world where there are good long-term data sets of um, there's certain regions, um, you know, off California coast, there's some long-term data sets up in the North Sea, North Atlantic. There's long-term data sets, and those are really useful for looking at change, but they just don't exist in the Antarctic. And we've got to start somewhere, so we'll set these sentinel. We call them sentinel sites up, and then the benefit of those will be in the next sort of twenty years when someone can go back and look at them. And is and that is that sentinel sites like an international thing, or is it just just New Zealand? Well, we'll set them up, but, you know, there'll be, you know, the information that we gather would be available to anyone. I mean, all science is always international, and we've got collaborators, but, yeah, this is a New Zealand initiative, but, yeah, we certainly would hope that it would get international support in the future because it's not a cheap place to work, and, you know, it's easy to say, oh, we'll set up four or five sites and we'll go and visit them every 30 years, but it's a big, big cost, big logistical effort. I mean, that's one of the things you learn about Antarctic research is that everything takes three or four times longer than doing the same work up here. You, like you imagine going for a dive up in New Zealand, you just pull your boat up, jump off and 
get in the water, but in the Antarctic, you've got to drill a hole through sea ice, which will take a day. You've got to install a dive hut. You've got half an hour underwater before you get too cold. You've got big dive teams. So, yeah, any data you get, any information you get down there is really hard, hard earned. Yeah, is there any um, other long-term studies, designs that that are going to be set up for... Well, there's, terrest- there's the, the terrestrial team. Um, there's an LTR, Long-Term Ecological Research Programs, and there's a, there's a long-running one up in the dry valleys in, in the Antarctic, which the dry valleys are about 50, 60 k's away from Scott Base on the other side of McMurdo Sound. So that's a long-term study um, that's been going, and they've certainly been, been able to quantify changes in, in lake levels, they, you know, changes in free level water, uh, river flow and that, and, and in places like the Antarctic, free water or liquid water is really key to what the biology, you know, biology doesn't survive without you know, liquid water. So if you see a change in, in humidity or changes in free water, you're going to get changes in the in the biology. There are some longer-term studies that have been done on the Antarctic Peninsula, and these are going back probably 30 years, and that's been done through the British Antarctic Survey, and they're working up in a base called Rothera. That's a place which has experienced a lot of warming, a lot of increase in iceberg activity, and so they've got some long-term data sets showing how iceberg activity is increasing and it's icebergs move around, they basically ground up the sea floor so they, yeah, you get big changes in ecosystems. There's also been some nice work done on ice shelf collapses. Up on the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula there was some big ice shelves called the Larsen's ice shelves and I don't know if some of your listeners may remember the Larsen ice shelf collapses that kind of occurred about 10 or 15 years ago. But... Interestingly, like there's there's a lot of life under those ice shelves, and there's a whole ecosystem, and they kind of resemble deep sea ecosystems. A lot of animals that rely on sort of particles getting swept swept under, and so when those ice shelves collapse, they sort of collapse in series. So there was ones that collapsed early, and some which collapsed more recently. So you've got a sort of a time series, and people have used that time series to see how the ecosystems have changed. You know, from an ecosystem that lived under the ice shelf to an open coast ecosystem and so there's some really nice ways that they can document sort of change and how you can use that as a proxy for change in the future actually one of the things they did notice was that the change is much quicker than they thought they were thinking oh, Antarctica things will recruit and grow really slowly and you know change will be real slow but actually it was quite rapid much more rapid than they thought yeah it kind of contradicts the whole slow growing life in yeah. the slow land well, this is a real. This has been a paradigm. Actually, you're right. So the real paradigm was that everything in the Antarctic was really slow growing, and it may have been a function of cold temperatures, but also, you know, primary production is really seasonal down there, and often there's no, no nothing to eat during the winter months. So, so things were always thought to be slow growing, but actually, recent studies have said suggest that's not the case. There's also been some other serendipitous observations. Um, one interesting study where there was a, a big ladder that fell off a ship into some shallow water and um, the divers photographed it for some reason. Ten years later they went back and it was covered by sponges which were about a metre high, you know, and up to, you know, I forget how how heavy they were, but probably 100 kgs. And these sponges, had they thought they must have been really old and really slow growing because no one had just been able to observe them, you know, over time. But now they realise actually these sponges can grow you know, fast some of the fastest growing sponges on the planet. But so yeah, there's you know there are some things that do grow slow, other things that, but it's not it's not like everything's just slow growing. Yeah, there's a few exceptions to the rule. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, and, and sponges are, are an interesting one. 
because um, the Antarctic seafloor is really dominated by sponges, especially glass sponges, and and they do seem to be well adapted to the Antarctic uh, for a couple of reasons, well, a few reasons. One is they they glass sponges produce silicate skeletons, and silicates are really high in concentrations in the water down there because it's so cold. So there's lots of material for them to grow. And also they feed on bacteria, and there's lots of bacteria down there. So sponges are pretty well adapted for fast growing, and they really dominate the seafloor. Like you know, if you looked at the if you looked at the percentage cover of the seafloor around places like Scott Base or McMurdo, about you know over half of it would be big sponges, and so yeah, they really dominate. And do they do they have any predators? Are they yep. Yeah, sponges aren't the tastiest things in the world, are they? And they often, you know, they've got these these spicules in them so they don't get grazed and that. But no, there are specialist animals that will certainly graze on sponges. Um, that's ten, that's what you tend to get a specialist. So there's some nudibranchs, which are these shellless mollusks um, that are highly specialised on feeding on sponges. Um, another strange animal called a pycnogonid or a sea spider, they're spongivores. Yeah, but 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 generally not, you know, not many things will eat a sponge, but. Um, the, the sponges are more than likely going to be killed through something like an iceberg. Um, that's where you get the disturbances, but not through grazing or predation generally. So that's why sponges do tend to dominate. And they're also important because not many things do feed on bacteria. And so they can harvest bacteria from the water column. So they're what we call a pelagic benthic coupler. They're taking productivity from the water column, feeding into the seabed and fixing you know, energy that can be available. Yeah, so they are a super important group, absolutely. So they're almost like a primary producer, almost. Well, they're the key link between that primary production, yeah, yeah, which can be, as I said, for much of the year there isn't much primary production because it's dark and it's covered in sea ice and so phytoplankton just won't grow. But bacteria is a lot more, um, a lot less variable. Bacteria is always in the water column and so those sponges have always got that bacteria to feed on and then you'll get the big spring blooms and everything will feed on that on that phytoplankton bloom but that might only last for for six weeks something like that and then it'll be gone again and have you been fortunate enough to see that algae on the underside of the sea ice yeah yeah so so you do so so when so when we um, when we first when we would normally go diving we would go down in kind of October and and it's still early in the season there's usually a lot of snow on the ice and so there isn't much ice algae and so if you look up under the ice it's nice and blue and and you know clean looking but as, as the season goes on, you'll see it slowly turn yellow and gold. You know, when we think of sea ice, what we shouldn't think of is this kind of sterile layer of frozen water. It's not like a pond that freezes and it's, you know, that is just a solid block of freshwater ice. When sea ice forms in the Antarctic, it forms with lots of pores and brine channels. It's quite porous and you get a whole ecosystem that grows in it called the sea ice microbial community. And that is a really complex environment, complex community that supports... Um, and then including that is that diatom layer that you, that you talked about lives on the bottom of the sea ice but then all that what we call Simcoe then supports much of the other ecosystem in there so when the sea ice does disappear all that nutrient and materials released into the water column and it will um, fuel you know, much of the benthos benthic ecosystem yeah but it is yeah, super complicated yeah it's not just a sort of sterile layer yeah, because yeah. you definitely, when you think sea ice, definitely the first thing that comes into your mind is a sterile yeah, layer yeah, of yeah, exactly, capping yeah. the ocean. Yeah, it's a pretty extreme environment. Like, um, it's one of the most extreme habitats on the planet. Um, 
the temperatures can range anywhere from about minus 60 to about minus 2 degrees Celsius and um, and it's also the water in there can be very like it's porous so you'll get and when the sea ice forms it releases salt so you get really high salinity seawater so animals that live in there have to they, they have to survive really high salinities um, it can be hyperoxic um, because of oxygen that's released by the phytoplankton and the diatoms gets trapped in there you can also get major swings in pH so it is a pretty extreme environment for these organisms to survive in yes there's quite an interest in how they do it yeah nice and would you um, I know you're an invertebrate man what would have to be your favourite animal is something I've been asked to ask you <laughs> my favourite animal well I do I mean you've seen the starfish at the marine lab I think quite like those guys yeah they're pretty um, yeah I mean I've, I've you know my, my training has always been in starfish and sea urchin so I'm always interested in seeing a new species when I'm down there um, oh, they're all good they're all good <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, I, I do. I do favour the starfish. I guess yeah, you've got me there. They are pretty tough little guys. You know, they live in a pretty extreme environment. Um, Metabolism is incredibly slow because they are cold. Um, you know, to have an animal living in minus two degree water and surviving is pretty interesting. Yeah, and the ones at the lab you said were ancient as. Yeah, they're even fifty to hundred years old. They think yeah, yeah. So definitely, yeah, not many things eat starfish actually. <laughs> either they have all sorts of. Um, nasty chemicals in their flesh to stop them eating yeah I mean very few um, things eat starfish including humans there are very few cultures which eat starfish if you think about it um, I, I've only ever been to one place in the world where I saw starfish for sale to eat and that was in China um, but no so yeah in general not many things eat starfish sea urchins are well armoured with spines so yeah but that's those I mean one of the reasons why we're interested in in starfish and sea urchins is because they're very important ecologically. They're often what we call keystone species. Um, so if you go to a place like the Antarctic and you went diving, one of the things that would strike you is the abundance of, of those animals. Like the seafloor can be carpeted with these little starfish, like thousands, you know, in an area the size of a small living room, or well, tens of thousands. And so what happens to them will be important for how the whole ecosystem functions. They can be... You know, they can be uh, ecosystem modifiers. They, you know, in temperate systems, urchins, urchins remove kelp beds, um, completely changing a coastal environment from a nice, diverse kelp forest to barrens. Um, on, on coral reefs, big starfish, they, about, about a quarter of the loss of coral in the barrier reef has been due to starfish grazing, crown of thorn starfish. Yeah, those crown, those crown of thorns ones are very nasty looking. Yeah, nasty to touch. Yeah, no, so we, yeah, that's another animal that um, every year I, I, I go up to the Barrier Reef and I've been working with um, colleagues up there on the crown of thorns because there's a real interest in, in those populations because of the reason that they are one of the major, if not the major, um, cause of coral reef loss. And there's there's um, there's thoughts that the reason the, the the outbreaks of these starfish are quite recent, and it's a lot of it's associated with the runoff of nutrients from land driving um, conditions, which favour the the reproduction of the animal. So we're in, we're really interested in understanding how those processes might drive future changes in these starfish populations. Yeah, no, but they are nasty, all right. You don't want to touch one. Um, so I was diving with a colleague actually would have been a couple of years ago now and we were, we were collecting samples for genetics 
and um, next thing he, he goes berserk underwater and he's shaking his hand and he got a spine in his thumb and I think, oh yeah, what a baby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, it's very, very toxic and he lost complete feeling in his thumb. It was so bad that we nearly had to take him on land to see a doctor um, and if you were to accidentally put a whole hand on a crown of thorns or sit on one, you, you know, it's potential for you to die. Um, and every time you get a sting, it's worse. And actually, they, they because these crown of thorns starfish are, are so damaging to the reef, there are people, the commercial divers that go out there and they go, go out and basically remove them or kill them. But those divers, um, if they get if they get pricked once, um, if they do it again, they're off the team, because every time you get a you get an infection or you get a sting by one, you know you'll um, it gets worse. So they just can't afford these people um, touching them. They're, they're big starfish. I mean, their size of some of them can be half a meter across, and they've got I don't know, you know, twenty or thirty arms, big spines. Um, they look innocuous enough, but yeah, if you touch one, watch out. And my colleague, a guy called Sven, he's still lost feeling a thumb. You probably never get it back. Really? Yeah. So, and and, and um, his research assistant, she got a spine in her in her hand, and man, she was off work for two or three weeks. So yeah, it's interesting that they get worse every time. What, yeah. Do you, know, do you know the mechanism behind that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but it must be just a physiological response. I would imagine it's not too. Um, maybe your body just overreacts, you know, because it knows what's coming. And yeah, not sure why. But yeah, you'd have to ask a, a, a doctor that one. But yeah, um, I know for a fact that it, it, yeah, every time you get it, it's worse. And are they they're hard to remove, aren't they? I heard I heard a rumor that if you manage to like rip one up, that just releases all its eggs into the. Yeah. So the way they they um, they reduce these is they inject them underwater. So they have a, they'll have a team of divers, probably about 10 or 20 divers, they're all commercial divers, and they go down and they inject them with a chemical. It used to be a nasty chemical, um, I think it was potassium permanganate, I think it was, which is not particularly good for the environment, and you would inject them and the starfish would die. But they've, they've now developed this much more, less, this much um, more environmentally friendly um, inject, um poison that they use and it's actually from extracted from cows so it's a byproduct of of the freezing works basically yeah and so they inject it into the animals and um it's pretty toxic but it's you know it's, it's environmentally friendly um and the starfish just die up die pretty quick so you yeah like there's this old um well this is not a myth but you know starfish are a bit of a nuisance and in, in a lot of ecosystems and there was a this classic um study or story that off the coast, east coast of the US there were these um, scallop beds and the starfish numbers were going up and they were eating all the scallops which they do. The starfish are great predators, you know, very, very efficient predators and they can mow through scallops pretty quick and the fishermen yeah, hated these starfish so when they would dredge for the scallops any starfish came up they'd cut them in half and throw them back but the problem with starfish is they've got great powers, well not a problem but they've got great powers of regeneration so if you cut a starfish in half you've basically doubled <laughs> <laughs> the number because each half will just grow and um, in fact you know, if your listeners were to go along the beach in the Otago Harbour here you turn over rocks you'll see starfish which have been splitting all the time so they have three long arms and three short arms and that's an animal that's split 
and the three long arms are the original animal and they're, they're growing three new arms. So starfish, are, they can grow new arms, they can grow whole new bodies. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because they can grow back from one tentacle. Yeah, one arm, yeah, so wow. they can. So you're right. So if you pull an arm off, and as long as it's got a wee bit of the central disc in it, yeah, you can get a new starfish. I mean, not not all of them, you know, not all of them can do that. Um, but certainly are some that have got great powers of regeneration. But yeah, there's some species, um, that's all. That, that's their main. That's their main mode of reproduction is actually asexual splitting, or what we call um, fission. Yeah, they just split in half all the time. And once they get to a certain size, they keep splitting and splitting, and that they keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Yep. Is, do yeah. they do that when the environmental factors favour? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, there is so. You know, starfish can produce sexually, so they can produce a larval stage, and there'll be male, separate sexes, so male and female. So they have the potential to reproduce sexually, but some populations just don't bother. And there's always a lot of um, a lot of um, you know hypotheses on why they would favour asexual reproduction. Um, there are some advantages to asexually reproducing. Um, you know, there's there's you've, you're producing a bigger offspring you know you can you're, you're genetically well adapted to the environment so there's lots of different hypotheses on why you would favor asexual reproduction over sexual reproduction where you can you produce a larvae but it gets washed away and the chance of the larvae surviving is so small um so yeah good question <laughs> yep yeah starfish i've never really thought about them too much apart mm-hmm. from when you've when you've brought them up yeah in, in various classes that i've been in yeah um well, they're closely related to us, you know. It's funny enough, you know, where if you look at the animal phylogeny, we uh, phylogenetic tree. There's a big branch called the deuterostomes versus the protostomes, and some of you, you know, your biological students listening would would remember those two terms: the protostomes and deuterostomes. And the deuterostomes are a branch which includes starfish and sea urchins, all the echinoderms. It includes all the chordates, which we're off. So we're Pretty closely related to starfish, uh, much more closely related to starfish than we are to squid and, and and crabs and all those other animals. Yep, and that's actually one of the reasons why um, starfish have been very popular in terms of studying embryology, because they have embryological development close to human development. So we can use this as a much easier to study starfish embryos than as human embryos, of course. Yeah, and the ethics, ethics and that it as exactly. Well. Yeah, yeah, and you can. Oh, you've done it in class. You've spawned urchins and Murray too. I too. You can see how easy they are. Yeah, um, you can fertilise them in a beaker and have lots of fun watching them develop. It's real easy, isn't it? And um, yeah, so they've been used as, as models for for um, embryology for a hundred years or more. Oh, I didn't know they were so closely related. I yeah. completely forgot that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not too closely related, but, but yeah, we're in the same branch. Yeah, yeah. yep. And have you done? Share, have you yeah. done much work on the the crab crabs and whatnot, or have you just? Um, not so. I've the closest I've come to working on crustaceans was on krill. Um, so I've worked on on those. I haven't worked on crabs or anything like that. We're we're starting quite a bit of work on the environmental DNA at the moment, which is kind of becoming quite a hot topic. And using you can just take a water sample, you can extract the DNA out that's in the water, and you can actually use that to describe what what's around the environment. You know what animals are in the, in the environment because they're shedding their DNA. So we've just been starting that. But one of the one of the ways you could look at environmental DNA is just take a water sample and then analyse it. But we're quite interested in understanding whether we can use natural filters. So sponges, for example, are always marine sponges are always filtering water and they're collecting DNA. 
So just this last summer, we've been um, running a project where we've been collecting sponges, extracting the DNA out of them and seeing what they've been collecting and where that relates to what's around. So we're funny enough, you know, we had, we collected sponges and they had blue whale DNA in them. <laughs> so there must have been a blue whale that went, went past at some stage. Um, we can use it to quantify all the different fish species. Just from what the sponge has been collecting, it's kind of natural biofilters. And that, yeah, so nice. that's something we're quite interested in. And we're going to apply that to the Antarctic, actually. As we go back to these Antarctic sponges, um, there's big collections of Antarctic sponges that go way back 60 years. And so we're interested and we've got a proposal that's been assessed on using those collections of sponges that will still have all the DNA in them that they collected when they were alive. And we'll go back and see what was around. So we might be able to track what happens to the whale populations just from what the sponges were filtering and collecting in terms of whale DNA. But it's all kind of blue sky stuff, you know, yeah. so we'll see what happens. But, yeah, quite a, quite exciting. I well, mean, yeah. environmental DNA is great for looking at things like invasive species as well. You know, invasive marine species are a real nuisance, um, and sometimes it's really hard to detect them in the environment. You just can't see them. But you can get water samples, and if their DNA is in those water samples, you know, hey, there's a problem here. These got this particular invasive species is around nearby. We better, we better go and do something about it. Oh, that might be a nice place to end. Thank you very much, Miles. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Hope you guys all enjoyed. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.